From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, digging into soil health at General Mills, Shell's climate chief on the rise of nature-based solutions, why vertical farming is on the way up, and why vehicle-to-grid technology is revving up. We're plug-and-play this week on 350. It's November 15th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me right here in Green Biz Studio, oh look, it's Heather Clancy, Editorial Director. Heather, so great to see you as always. <laughs> well, hello, Joel. It is great to be here, as always. So you've been uh, here on the West Coast uh, from your perch uh, base in Midland Park, New Jersey, for about a week or so. Um I know we had some meetings here, but I think some other things brought you out. Tell us a little bit about your time here in the West. Yeah, so I did speak um, about my book. I have a book. I don't know if everyone out there knows that, but uh, I had a book out last year with a friend of mine who's a longtime marketing person, and we talked about what makes you unique as an entrepreneur and how do you build your niche and find your niche. So, um, I was and, and are you going to plug the title of said book? <laughs> niche Down. Okay. How <laughs> how to become legendary by being different. So, and yeah, I'm not it, very good at self-promotion, as you can see. <laughs> so you were out here plugging that, and where were you plugging it? Oh, at a conference, a uh, Constellation Research Conference in uh, Half Moon Bay, lovely Half Moon Bay. So uh, it was great. And then, of course, I got to spend time with my, my brother um, and uh, spent some time on horseback looking at the lovely Silicon Valley from, from up high. I actually could see the apple Building. It was very cool to be able to see that from uh, from on high, if you will. The spaceship. Um, spaceship. So good. Well, it's been a busy week. Yes, you know. So every time, and I think this is this is. I'm taking it personally. Every time I come west, you go east or go north or go somewhere else. Where were you this weekend? Why? Well, it's not because of you. I uh, was in New Orleans uh, Wednesday, Thursday for uh, to speak at the Aviation Fuel Forum, uh, a bunch of uh, mostly fuel purchasers, but others in the aviation industry looking at sustainability and, and the future. You know, I don't know that you know this. I'm just learning a lot about this myself, but the global aviation industry has set a, a goal um, that by 2020, which we're, <laughs> what, six or seven weeks away from, but starting in 2020, there will be no net new emissions from aviation, which is to say that for all the growth in the industry, and they're expecting possibly to double passenger miles by the mid-century, that there will be no rise in aviation uh, emissions beyond the levels set, I don't know, in 2019 or 2020. And um, that's going to be interesting. And then, of course, Part of that also is eventually having, uh, cutting in half the emissions based on, a, I think, 2005 baseline. So is that a big enough goal when most of the world is going to zero, net zero emissions by 2050, and they're trying to only cut them in half? Arguable, but probably not. But uh, they're on a path and uh, trying hard. And, and they're doing this at a time of, of flight shaming, where there's actually, it's a real thing in some, particularly in Europe, where people are starting to fly less. And I think, you know, 
I wouldn't be surprised if here in these United States, as well as in, in Europe and other places, that there will be some activist uh, naming and shaming kinds of campaigns against companies that aren't cutting back on, on their air travel. So this is an, obviously an area of concern for them. At the same time, 80% of the planet's occupants of people in the world have never flown. So there is a lot of room for growth. So I think this is the delicate, very delicate balance and countervailing forces that they're seeing. So anyway, I was over there talking about that and spent a little time at the BSR conference down in San Jose. So uh, let's, uh, that's, that's, that's a lot going on. But um, let's, enough of that. Let's get to the news we can review. I'll get us started this week uh, with a story by our longtime managing editor, now senior writer, Elsa Wenzel. She was at Verge and put together a piece on vehicle-to-grid technology. So this is a great uh, recap of what's possible today and what's not possible today. But the, the basic idea being that we see a lot of electric vehicle charging infrastructure being aligned, of course, more closely to the, the grid in general, and, and utilities are being very thoughtful about this. Commercial real estate owners are really thinking about how to make investments in, in the charging infrastructure. And then how do you use that um, to balance the grid, to balance demand across um, you know, the power grid in, in times of peak demand, or even you know, say there's a power outage. You know, could you use your EV charging infrastructure which happens to be plugged to a big battery to to power your house. So this is a great look at some of the existing scenarios that are happening, both on a residential and commercial basis, and then also some of the, the great utility companies that are they're getting into this. Like National Grid is, is an absolute leader in trying to understand where this is going to go, and they have some some projects in place that they're they're, they're uh, being able to 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 gather information from and, and to try to understand. Uh, Maui Electric actually is doing some really interesting things, of course, in Hawaii and and um, uh, Enel, Enel, which is the the Italian utility. Their North American division has a product unit specifically focused on charging infrastructure, and they're really getting into this whole mobility movement and so forth. So fascinating story. Feels like this is a topic, like so many technologies that we've been talking about for a long time, around, for example, using vehicles as a as storage for uh, the grid uh, during times of peak power usage. You might be able to power your home or maybe even a company uh, during. Or at least your refrigerator. Or at least your fridge, yeah. Um, and that uh, it feels like it's taking forever, but. When it happens, it's going to happen kind of quickly, and we're going to all of a sudden see this explosion of, of companies and technologies and, and partnerships, because this is, by nature, vehicle to grid, which means you're dealing with a lot with municipalities as well as utilities, as well as all of the, the various infrastructure players. So there's a lot to wrangle and all that, but I think it's going to be big when it happens. The question is when. Yeah, I mean, I think that what one of the great things about Verge, our conference Verge, is that it does bring together the players, right, from different areas of the the industries that are going to be involved here. So the thing, I think, one of the things that's made this difficult is that it's 
policies that are related to the electric grid. There's it's policies that are related to transportation. So these sometimes these these agencies in the state the state level are certainly usually different, and so they have to kind of get their their acts together and get get their minds together to figure out what the policies are to incent this. Um, as far as like why now, I feel like especially here in California. You know, there's just so much more a realization of how vulnerable the the the, the world is. Um, you know, we're we're very privileged here in this world where we have electricity and we take it for granted. But excuse me, you're in California right now. <laughs> that's no longer <laughs> no, a given. But the point I was going to make is now you're discovering that that's not the case. That that we might not be able to guarantee that power, and we might have to turn it off for various reasons. So how do you? How do you get there? And so I think that um, it's like, I hate to say it, but it often takes like a poke in the, you know, the eye to get someone like, oh my gosh, like I, now I see this. You know, you have to kind of make people yeah. react. I hate it. I hate to say it. It's also a complicated thing because if, you, if you're driving across state lines, if you're where you live in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and you, you work in one place, live in another, and there's different standards for how your vehicle relates to the grid or things you can do in, in New Jersey that you can't do in Connecticut, uh, it's kind of like the early days of cellular technology, cellular telephone technology. It used to be you could only use it in your region and everything else was... Uh, I forget what the, there's even a term for this, where but you were it was a certain kind of call. It wasn't long distance, but it had to be roaming. roaming. That's it. Thank you. I forgot. It's been so long, and and if you traveled, you had to have a special kind of connection or or phone setup, and and it wasn't till I mean it's been what 20 years or so that we've had this national system where you can any phone will work anywhere and, and there's national plans and all of that. But I think. We're going to have to go through some of that for a while before vehicle-to-grid is truly at scale. Yeah, there's actually a great initiative in the Northeast focused on that. So I feel like that's the right approach. I mean, we've got Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, all these, Connecticut, all working together to try to, to, try to define this. Well, speaking of growing things, let's talk about vertical farming. Uh, Gene Haggerty, a, a GreenBiz contributor, did a really great piece about the rise of urban indoor vertical farming, and that's at a key juncture now where, um, thanks to automation and thanks to growing demands for, for food and, and a whole range of both technology and policy and market forces, that indoor farming and farming uh, primarily leafy greens at scale uh, inside urban and uh, urban environments or, or not, um, or in some cases in shipping containers or on rooftops in greenhouses is now starting to really get going. And I always like to point out that a lot of the technologies here really stem from uh, things that were perfected in the cannabis industry, hydroponics, for example, if you used to, you know, used to go into a uh, hydroponics store and, and the clerk would say, winking all the way, so how are your <clears throat> tomatoes, um, knowing that's not exactly what you were growing, but now it's, how are your tomatoes? Because that's what people are growing. And, and so there's this, uh, I'm told all of this, by the way, I don't oh, know yes. anything about it myself. And so this is really getting to the point where we could start seeing uh, food miles cut to uh, substantially. And in some cases, I know in, in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn, there's a Gotham Greens, a com great company that has these v massive football field size uh, greenhouses, and they're growing one on top of a Whole Foods. So it used to be food miles is now really food feet. 
Yeah, I think um, what's happening here too I, is, is there's been a definite shift in, in the technologies that can support this from, from lighting, uh, even artificial intelligence that can actually go in and, and really fine-tune the growing conditions. So there's tools that are coming into play. Um, Newark uh, is a huge hotbed. I mean, it's one, of, one of the things I love about this sort of industry is that it can take these, br- not necessarily brownfields, but abandoned industrial facilities and turn them into some new jo- turn them into new jobs, turn them into a new uh, you know, the food deserts, in, in, especially in urban areas, you know, be providing a source of, of nutritional food that's not necessarily available. I know that there's some um, large companies, I don't know if you know this, Joel, but Unilever in their headquarters out in uh, New Jersey is, is, uh, has brought in some units that they're trying to help educate their workers about vertical farming. Now, certainly not these big-sized units, but but trying to, to raise awareness and, and the possibilities um, there's one on the roof of the Method yes. factory in Chicago. Uh, there's a, uh, I don't know if it's Gotham Greens. It might it be Gotham. Gotham. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, has a massive uh, uh, farm where they're growing produce up mm-hmm. there. And I think they're giving, they're allowing neighborhood uh, pe- uh, people from the neighborhood and they're in, in South Side Chicago. So it's a relatively downscale uh, area to come and, and, first of all, get jobs, but also to grow and, and get uh, produce uh, for, their, for themselves. The only other point I would like to make is that there's been obviously a focus on leafy greens because they were the easiest things to grow at the beginning, but now we're seeing a shift to other types of produce and and that will be important like bell peppers and and like tomatoes as you mentioned before and I I believe that will be also just a signal that that this is going to be ready to cultivate at a higher level. So and, and the other part that's it's worth noting, and I wrote a piece of, also about this this week, is is the food resilience piece, and food equity piece of indoor f- farming. Where you, yeah, I talked about the Hunts Point Distribution Center in, in Bronx, New York, which is really the only way that food gets into New York from all over the world, and and it's susceptible between the uh, Bronx River and the uh, East River to flooding, in fact, came very close to being underwater during Hurricane Sandy if the timing of the high tide and the full moon and things like that were in the storm were a little bit different. But also, you know, getting food into like uh, to food deserts where there are no grocery stores, at least with produce, you just have the uh, convenience stores. So this is, uh, I think, a really interesting place. And yeah, some of that's being demonstrated in Newark. Aero Farms has this, uh, this great facility where they're growing a lot of things. And in that case, they're providing not just food and not just access to, to food for, for those who may not have it, but a second entry point for food in the New York area relative to this Bronx distribution center. So a little bit of progress there, So, but a lot, a lot of promise. So let's talk about a third story this week around sustainability-linked loans, um, which are a part of this sort of new world of Greenfin of uh, – financial instruments that are tied somehow to sustainability or the sustainable development goals or climate change or uh, other issues like that, in some cases, uh, so some social ones. Uh, you know, for a while we talked about green bonds uh, and companies like Apple and Levi Strauss uh, issued green bonds to work on projects uh, and they're still doing that. But that seems to be slowing down according to our contributor, Sarah Murphy. But these sustainability-linked loans um, it seems to be really potentially a game changer that if the cost of money is linked to your sustainability performance, 
I don't know if it's game over, but game on. I mean, this is now where uh, companies have to, this gets them where they live, uh, the cost of money to grow and expand and invest. Yeah, as we were preparing this story, just sort of looking at the two instruments, if you will, for 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 investing. Yeah, Apple actually, you know, another $2.2 billion bond offering. So they've been an incredible leader in, in using these for specific projects. So initially, it was for their renewables and then to help their supply chain get into renewables. And these other things are going towards other sort of systemic uh, projects internally that help them get become more sustainable. But I think for me, one of the numbers that really popped out was at Green Bonds since about 20, 2007, there's been about $788 billion totally in, in that 10-year time frame, 12-year time frame. And these loans, these sustainability-linked loans, which are only a couple years old, have grown to $108 billion um, in total interest. So it's, green bonds are still a bigger market. I mean, there's more of them than these loans, but these loans are growing fast. And I think part of the reason is because <sighs> maybe they're not – I don't want to say they're not as as hard to get, but they're they're different. And and if someone doesn't have the appetite or the the, the you know they don't need a huge bond, they can kind of look and and borrow money based on their ability to, as you said, meet the environmental, social, and governments metrics. There's a couple of ratings firms that have are, are kind of benefiting from this. Sustainalytics uh, is is helping people sort of peg their their money. So, so there are. I think I was just going to say that Heather, that that we're starting to see more and more of the uh, of the ratings firms, the Moody's and Fitches and S and P's, and Sustainalytics and MSCI's um, give specific ratings to companies based on their climate risk and climate readiness. And though that's just the climate part. There's other environmental attributes as well. But uh, and for, for example, Moody's is now starting to grade cities, municipalities on their climate risk and readiness, and so that directly affects the cost of their borrowing money. And as these uh, rank ratings mature uh, and get out more and more, and I start and, and we start to see more of the impacts of a change in climate on business operations and supply chains, uh, I see this is definitely a, a thing that's going to grow. Uh, There's going to be more and more attention paid to risk, and risk goes right to the cost of money. And um, and now we've started to see actual instruments and companies in place that are ready to capitalize, I guess, on those trends. Holly Seacon here, reporter at GreenBiz. I've been working on GreenBiz's regenerative agriculture coverage recently, and a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to talk to Steve Rosenswag, soil scientist at General Mills. After the food company set the goal to advance regenerative agriculture practices on 1 million acres of farmland by 2030, Steve is the guy working to make sure that it can get there. I recently caught up with him over the phone to talk about the work that General Mills is undertaking from partnering with farmers to measuring soil health to even defining regenerative. If the farm is improving soil health, biodiversity, and profitability and economic resilience, then that that meets our definition of regenerative ag. So we're not really taking a practices-based approach where you know you kind of have to do this this and this it's not really a checklist it's more of a it's more of the outcomes that we're interested in um so that you know a lot of my job and what i do is trying to figure out how we measure soil health soil carbon sequestration uh greenhouse gas emissions 
um, biodiversity, uh, both insect and birds, and farmer profitability, how we actually measure those things in the regions that we source from, um, so that we can track progress towards our commitments. More biodiversity, more profitability, what specifically are you looking for? Yeah, so um, this is actually something that we're, we're working pretty closely with um, John Lundgren, who's an entomologist. Uh, he runs a nonprofit called Ecdysis Foundation that does research on insect biodiversity. And he's really getting us to think more about functional biodiversity. So not just kind of biodiversity for biodiversity's sake, but biodiversity that actually performs an ecosystem service. So something like pest predation, so that farmers don't have to use as many pesticides or um, residue decomposition, so farmers don't have to do as much tillage, you know. So we're really trying to look at biodiversity that serves a purpose, but we're also looking at, um, you know, indicators of overall ecosystem health like birds. Uh, so we're trying to understand how, um, you know, birds eat insects, and so we're trying to understand how this whole food system, or this whole food chain, rather, uh, works on these farms. And so right now we have... Um, we're working with John's group, Ecdysis, and we're also working with Applied Ecological Services that has a team of wildlife ecologists, and they're really helping us understand the farm as an ecosystem and how this ecosystem actually works um, and what organisms in this ecosystem we might use as indicators of overall ecosystem health and those that might be um, informative for something like um, pest predation and, and some of these other ecosystem services uh, that farmers would be interested in as well. Um, so that's on the biodiversity side. On the soil health side, we're, uh, you know, we're really interested in soil carbon sequestration. Soil is a huge uh, potential solution to climate change if we can recapture the carbon that was lost from soils when we started farming. Um, and so, you know, soils have lost about half the amount of carbon, and that's a lot of carbon when you consider that soils hold three times more carbon than the atmosphere. Um, and we have the ability through regenerative agriculture to recapture that carbon back into soils through the way we farm uh, through regenerative agriculture. And so um, we want to be able to measure that carbon sequestration. Um, and so, so we're, right now we're taking meter deep soil carbon cores and, and looking at um, in the northern plains in our oat supply chain and, and soon in our, in our wheat supply chain, um, how farmers that are implementing regenerative practices are starting to sequester carbon in their soil and how much they're able to sequester. Um, and we're looking at other metrics of soil health as well. So soil is a living ecosystem, and there's living organisms like bacteria and fungi um, and insects too. And so, so we're, looking at, um, we're looking at microbial biomass, so the total amounts of bacteria and fungi, uh, we're looking at insects living in the soil, so we're taking soil cores and kind of shining a light, um, a really hot light on top, and so all the insects that are in the soil will crawl out the bottom and we'll see uh, all the different insects that are living in the soil. Uh, we're looking at things like water infiltration, so we know that you know with climate change, uh, we'll have less frequent but more intense rain events, um, and so that's gonna that poses a huge problem for farmers who who are trying to capture that water in their soil, and so we're looking at things like water infiltration rate. You know, how resilient are these are these farmers' soil to to some heavy rain events? Uh, how erodible are they? So we're looking at a whole bunch of different soil health properties as well. Um, and on the farmer economic side, kind of the, the fundamental economic hypothesis of regenerative ag is that as farmers start to restore their ecosystem, they can reduce the 
uh, amount of costly inputs they have to buy, like fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides, uh, fungicides, um, because their ecosystem is essentially performing those services for them uh, for free, and they don't have to pay for them. So, so farmers can reduce their input costs by restoring their ecosystem while maintaining productivity uh, and therefore becoming more profitable. That's kind of the economic hypothesis, and, and that's really what we're, we're measuring. We're, we're putting that to the test and trying to collect data from farmers um, who are transitioning to regenerative systems and seeing how their input costs change and seeing how their productivity changes, um, and ultimately uh, if they're more profitable at the end of the transition. How are you getting farmers to let you come and measure all of these impacts on their on their land? So we're really, um, it's a it's part of our regenerative ag uh, pilot program. And so, so we have a commitment to advance regenerative ag on a million acres by 2030. Um, and there's kind of, we're piloting a strategy for how to do that. And so we've really recognized that, um, that technical assistance is, is a huge gap in this space. So regenerative ag is knowledge intensive. It's not input intensive. And so there's a lot of knowledge and, um, and expertise that's required to, to practice a regenerative system. And so we're pairing up with Gabe Brown's group, Understanding Ag, and they have a network of consultants throughout Canada and the U.S. Uh, that, and we're, we're basically pairing our farmers one, up one-on-one with a regenerative ag coach. And they're sitting down at the kitchen table and coming up with regenerative management plans uh, and implementing those over the next couple of years. And so um, as part of this program where we're providing this coaching service, uh, we're also collecting the, the information to, to see if, if the farmers are restoring their ecosystems, if they're becoming more profitable. And so um, the partner, the, the farmers have agreed to, you know, to let us collect soil samples and insect samples and send some wildlife ecologists out to their farm. They're also entering their management practices for one of their fields uh, and all the costs and yields and stuff associated with that um, because they want to know, you know, am I more profitable? Am I... Uh, restoring my ecosystem, um, so so they're they're you know willingly providing this data to help really ch- start to understand um, how their management is affecting these these outcomes that they're interested in as well. Yeah, and so we're we're doing that program right now with 45 farmers in the Northern Plains, and uh, just in a week here, we're we're going to be launching a similar program in the Southern Plains uh, in Kansas and uh, Oklahoma. When do you expect that farmers will see payoff? Uh, I know that, you know, it's all seasonal and regenerative practices can kind of, uh, it's usually supposed to take, what, between three and seven years? Um, but when do you expect uh, farmers to farmers to see? I actually don't think we know that yet. That kind of three-year, seven-year transition gap was, I think, is really kind of came from the organic transition and the regenerative transition is very different in a lot of cases. Um, and so, you know, Gabe Brown, who, whose uh, consultancy we're working with these farmers with, he says that if you're not more profitable year one, then we failed. And so he, Gabe is actually thinks that this kind of um, profitability lag is, is kind of a myth. And so, you know, we don't really have great data on it. And so that's what we're, we're really measuring. And that, you know, these are the questions that we get all the time from farmers is like, how long is it going to take for me to see improvements in my soil? How long is it going to take for me to be able to start cutting back on fertilizer? Um, how long will it take for me to turn a profit? And that's that's really why this research is, is so needed um, is because we don't have great answers to questions like that. 
Uh, and so, so yeah, we'll be able to, we'll be able to see, uh, hopefully pretty soon. This is our first year of data collection, but, um, you know, we'll be collecting data for at least the next three years. Uh, so we'll be able to really answer that question for farmers in these regions where we're doing this work. Last week, Chicago-based renewables developer Invenergy created a new business dedicated to deploying turnkey energy installations for large facility and fleet owners. Its focus is on managing energy costs, increasing reliability, and enhancing electrification efforts. Joining me to talk more about the new division is Shashank Sane, Senior Vice President of Invenergy and head of the new business called Invenergy Edge. Welcome. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me. First, give us some context on Invenergy. What does the current portfolio look like and what markets are you hoping to prioritize? Well, Invenergy has been around for almost 20 years now. We're uh, a leading privately held global developer and operator of sustainable energy solutions. We've developed over 24,000 megawatts of wind, solar, natural gas, as well as energy storage projects uh, across many different geographies, mainly here in the U.S. and North America but we also operate in South America, Europe, and Asia. The projects generally that we've de delivered to date have been for the utility customer base, but we've also been one of the leaders in the trend of uh, corporates uh, and their offtake plans. So where does Invenergy Edge fit in? Why the need for a separate business? Well, Invenergy Edge really came about because we saw a trend in customers, major customers of energy, wanting to take greater control of their energy choices. Some wanted greater sustainability, some wanted greater resiliency, all of them frankly wanted lower costs. But really we're at the point now where costs have declined and technologies have improved where customers no longer really need to make a choice between cost, sustainability, and resiliency. They can have it all together. But one of the challenges is that our industry has made it kind of difficult for them to embrace those technologies. I analogize it sort of to a, a puzzle where in order to unlock the true value, all the pieces need to fit together. But to date, as an industry, we've really been selling individual puzzle pieces, sometimes without even the, uh, the picture on the front of it to know where it goes together. And that's what really we're trying to do here is, is put those pieces together in a way that makes sense for each individual customer. Mm -hmm. uh, Invenergy Edge is not really a separate business. It's really a complementary offering to our utility scale business where we can offer now a truly full suite of solutions to all the customers out there. Okay. So describe the ideal prospect for Invenergy Edge. Do you have any customers yet? You, you mentioned some PPAs and other things you've done, already done. So is this like evolving out of your existing uh, clients on the industrial and commercial side? Yeah, the, the ideal customers are certainly uh, some of the ones that we've worked with on the uh, consumer and industrial side on the large scale projects, but there is a, a different set of customers that we are targeting here as well. Our, our main customer focus is industrial facilities, you know, the owners of either single facilities or portfolios of facilities, and then also fleet operators. Uh, one of the trends that we really saw when starting this business was the electrification of transportation. And as fleets move from being uh, fossil fuel powered to being electric, it really opens up a whole new set of challenges for them in thinking through the resilience, sustainability, and cost of operating those fleets. 
So those are, are really the two main uh, customer bases that we are focused on. But one of the additional elements that I think we can bring is that with a national presence, we can work with those customers across entire portfolios of facilities. So we can think through what it means to have a facility in California versus the Southeast versus the Northeast and be able to execute on facilities throughout all those regions. We are certainly early in the on-site part of this business. We have worked with corporates for the past number of years and have, like I said, been one of the leaders on the corporate PPA trend. But as we think about the on-site solutions with Invenergy Edge, one of the most encouraging things that I've seen just in the few months we've been doing this is really the breadth of the, the customer opportunities that are available out there. It's traditional manufacturing facilities, it's electric vehicle fleets, and it's really from coast to coast and everywhere in the middle. A lot of times distributed energy resources or, or you know, solar and storage get thought of as California or, or the Northeast maybe, but we really see the opportunities everywhere. So you've mentioned fleets a couple of times. So I, I, I'd love to hear a couple of the solutions that you're focusing on, maybe starting with, with what you're thinking about offering to fleet owners. Absolutely. So with fleet owners, there's really a, a host of challenges that, that become present once you start converting a fleet to being electric. The first and foremost is what is the cost of my vehicle going to be all in or, or total cost of ownership as people talk about in the, the fleet world. So there's the cost of the vehicle, but then there's also the ongoing operating costs of which now electricity will be a big portion of that. So helping the fleet owner, whether that's the public municipality who's running their bus, uh, transit bus fleet, or it could be the corporate that has a fleet of trucks or vans, making sure that we can hone in and, and, and really manage the costs for them because of the impact of charging on how they can, uh, how they will uh, pay for the electricity. Demand charges can be a, a huge variable in the cost structure for a, an electric fleet. So cost is, is certainly the first thing that we're managing, but reliability and resiliency is, is absolutely critical. It would be very difficult for a municipal transit agency to say, well, the buses aren't running today because the electric grid was out, so we couldn't charge the buses. So really, focusing and zeroing in on the resiliency elements and making sure that those bus depots can charge the buses regardless of what the grid conditions are. And then the final point on sustainability is that this movement that we're seeing from fossil powered vehicles to electric is largely driven by sustainability. And so having the right solutions from the energy perspective to maximize the sustainability benefit is critical. So what will those solutions look like? It's really a combination of resources. First and foremost, it's the charging infrastructure itself. So we will own and manage the, the chargers that are delivering the, the power to the buses, but then also a suite of on-site uh, energy products, whether that's solar, depending on the, the location, um, some batteries to help with demand charges or resiliency. There may be some backup generation, whether that's in the form of fuel cells, natural gas, or, or other sort of backup systems to ensure those real high resiliency uh, times are, are covered. And then really the other part of it is the smart controls to tie that all together. So as I mentioned earlier, it's really about the puzzle pieces all working together and the controls are really what will enable that and, and bring the pieces together in a way that makes sense. So I know this is a California dialogue, if you will, at this point, but microgrids, right? So the, the, with the, the recent um, 
shutdowns in, in, on the grid, especially in Northern California, there's been more attention focused on the microgrid opportunity. So will this business handle that sort of thing as well? Do you see that as an opportunity, especially knowing that you have some pretty large energy storage deals that you've done with utilities? You've got expertise there. Definitely. You know, the, the term microgrid is, is interesting. I think it means a, a lot of different things to a, a lot of different people. Um, as we think about our solutions, in many ways, they are microgrids. You know, thinking through a solar plus battery plus backup generation uh, package of energy assets together is, is in many ways a microgrid. I'd say for the most part, our solutions are not going to be uh, disconnecting from the grid. I mean, we really view this as being complementary to the, the grid and what the utility is providing in, in terms of getting the most efficient um, solution for the customer. But we, they will have that resiliency, that reliability element where if for whatever reason the grid is not available, that site will still be able to run. Thank you for that perspective. Now, I, of course, got asked this question. So how, what kind of contracts are you thinking about and financing? I mean, so, so you're going to own this infrastructure, like at least for the EV side of things. How will these, these relationships be structured? How will companies or, or municipalities be paying for this? Yeah, our model on the contracting side of things is really to be energy as a service. So uh, we do want to take that CapEx decision or the CapEx needs off of the, the customer's hands because oftentimes these decisions about whether to move forward with, with these projects get hung up in discussions about uh, ROI or payback periods. And so really providing it as a service and, and handling all the financing of it, we think is part of that turnkey approach that we're going to provide where we can be the full partner from day one of identifying the facility through all the design and construction and operations, but the financing is really a key element underpinning that. And, and given the history that Invenergy has around financing uh, complicated, you know, interesting power projects, we think we bring a real unique perspective to this and a lot of credibility in the market uh, in that we've been able to finance over $30 billion of, of energy projects over the years. So the, the as a service is, is really a key to, we think, unlocking this part of the market. Now, that being said, we are also very open on, on business structure. So we've, on the utility scale side of things, structured our contracts with utilities in many different manners. And that'll be the same approach we take here. Our goal is not to structure a contract in terms of what fits us best, but really what the customer is looking for and what their uh, desires are. So what will success look like for this business? What, what will you be telling me a year from now? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think much like everything that we've done at Invenergy, we'll be growing Invenergy Edge organically. As a company, we really don't believe in revenue or megawatt targets, but, but really growing the business as fast as the market will support. As I, as I said earlier, I've been really encouraged just by the pace of activity that we've had early on in this business and the amount of inquiry and the, the quality of the dialogue that we're having with our customers. And we've assembled a, a terrific team here at Energy Edge dedicated to this effort. We'll continue to grow that team on both the human and capital resources side just as quickly as the market demands. And with the, the pace of activity, I, I imagine that'll be pretty quick in the coming months and years.
During a recent trip to Seattle, I met up with David Hone, the chief climate change advisor at Shell. We talked about nature-based solutions. Uh, David, first of all, talk a little bit about what is a nature-based solution? Well, a nature-based solution is really, at its simplest, growing a tree. Uh, because when you grow a tree, it absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and secures it in the, the, the biosphere. So we've been doing this for a long time. We're talking about planting trees since the 70s at least, uh, as at least as a, as a uh, public good. Uh, why now? Why, why is this now nature-based solution? And why is this becoming a growing part of the um, toolkit, if you will, for uh, addressing climate change? I think there's a, a recognition that we've reached a point with the climate issue where emissions have to fall very rapidly and more importantly, they have to fall to zero. And that has to happen in the space of 30 years uh, to, to meet the sort of stretch goals of the Paris Agreement. Now, in the space of 30 years, we don't see it as possible to find alternative pathways for everything that fossil fuels are used for. And so therefore, you have to think about ways of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to balance the remaining emissions where fossil fuels are still used. So by 2050, you might see fossil fuels hardly used in the power sector, but still heavily used in big industry and, and aviation and shipping and other areas like that. Because these are long-lived sectors which take a long, long time to turn over. And so what are the tools at your disposal to balance remaining emissions? And there are two. One is to naturally remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through reforestation. And the second is to artificially remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through industrial processes and use geological storage. And both of those can play a role. Nature-based solutions are also important because I think there's a very clear recognition now that not only do we have to limit the use of fossil fuels, but we also have to see large swathes of the planet reforested for all sorts of reasons, not just to manage emissions, but to restore biodiversity, to restore clean air in a, in a different sort of way, to ensure that wetlands and all the other things that, that nature offers um, are still there in the future. So offsets have had a, a, an interesting history in terms of whether they were really additional, whether they were really verified, double counting. What's different now that suddenly these uh, offsets and the nature-based solutions in particular can be verified and can be trusted? I think what's different now and what's emerging very rapidly are the protocols that support the Paris Agreement. The nationally determined contributions, which are the, the, the plans that countries put forward to reduce emissions include, in many instances, nature-based solutions. They say that as well as reducing emissions from fossil fuel use, they're also going to engage in a certain amount of reforestation. And so that sets up, um, under the transparency process of the Paris Agreement, uh, a sort of a global scrutiny of what's going on which allows, um, allows these things to start happening. Now, the scale on which reforestation needs to take place, both to manage emissions, but also 
simply to, to restore the natural systems that have been degraded over many, many, many years is going to require lots of land and therefore lots of money. And so we're going to have to, I think, bring a commercial lens onto this. And the way of channeling commercial money into this is to offer a value proposition, which is in terms of carbon offsets. But you have to be able to show that those carbon offsets fit in to these nationally determined contributions and therefore are part of the overall um, goal of the Paris Agreement. And, and the architecture of the Paris Agreement, hopefully, once it's all finalized, will ensure that that happens. So why is Shell interested in this? What, what are you doing around this? I know you've been trading emissions for a long time, almost 20 years, I think. But are you investing or building out uh, nature-based solutions as offsets? The, the, the scale of nature-based solutions is going to require a commercial impetus behind it. Because we're talking about hundreds of millions of hectares of reforestation and afforestation. And that means hundreds of millions of hectares of land repurposed from what it's being used for now into forestry. And that's going to cost money. It's going to cost money in land and it's going to cost money in the reforestation process itself. And so bringing in commercial entities into this and encouraging companies like Shell to engage in this and using carbon trading underneath it to, to get that commercial wheel going is important. And the carbon trading introduces a value proposition for a company like Shell to be able to offer, for instance, offsets into, to its aviation customers or its shipping customers against the emissions that they can't currently avoid. And the benefit is that we manage emissions overall, but we also get this other benefit of actually getting this reforestation process going. So we're talking about uh, needing to grow a lot more food. We're talking about making energy, bioenergy, from uh, waste and crops and things. And we're talking about the need for offsets. Are we potentially asking too much of nature to the point of, of further stressing the systems? Well, I think it's, fair, it's a fair question, and I think we are asking a lot of nature. In our sky scenario that meets the goals of the Paris Agreement, we see very large reforestation. We use bioenergy at a considerable scale. Um, and of course, we recognize that there's a growing population in the world uh, of people who are meeting all of their basic needs, which includes food. So yes, you've got all of those tensions. In, in developing Sky, we worked both with the Nature Conservancy and with MIT and their climate modeling capacity or earth system modeling capacity to try and understand how all of these pieces fit together. And it requires a lot of change, for instance, in the agricultural system that we have today. But it is possible. We didn't go beyond the bounds of the global system in doing this. Otherwise, the models that MIT developed for us that represent Sky wouldn't have resolved. And so, We've, we've checked this to the extent that we can. And whilst yeah, I you know, also recognize that the issue that you've raised is a very real one, but I think with big changes in both the energy system and the agricultural and food systems, 
all of this can be done. David Hone is the Chief Climate Change Advisor for Shell. Thanks so much, David. Thank you very much. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish five of them, the different one uh, Monday through Friday. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters and find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.